Concentrate, concentrate, concentrate. Keep it in mind, keep it in mind. You mustn't be afraid to dream of the bigger, darling. Just us. The call went out. We aren't the only ones to answer, you know. You're shooting the bullet. You're catching it. Because it's all part of the plan. Are you watching closely? Hello, I'm Ben Brantlinger. And I'm Robert Denfeld. We're your hosts for Must Go Faster. And this is the Chris Nolan Chronicles, Part 5. So in this episode, Rob and I will discuss Interstellar, Nolan's outer space epic. Yes. We'll also pay tribute to Emma Thomas, his producing producing partner and wife. And then we will dive bomb into Dunkirk, <laughs> his World War II, dare I say, masterpiece. Yes. Tune in to find out. Love it. Um, if you haven't done so yet, you can catch up on the Chris Nolan Chronicles by checking out parts one through four out now on the Must Go Faster feed where we've looked back on all of Nolan's previous films, plus a bunch of the trademarks, themes, and techniques that have made his career so significant. Yes, there's a lot of a lot of content out there. Please check it out. Thanks. Oh, yeah. Hours and hours and hours uh, of content for you to enjoy. So let's kick off part five. Let's let's launch off, maybe, Ooh. I should say. Ooh. <laughs> um, didn't have that line. That was, that was improv. Um, <laughs> With our retrospective on 2014's Interstellar. We count these moments as our proudest achievements. Having fired the imagination of a generation. But we lost all that. Pulls into port for the last time. Or perhaps we've just forgotten that we are still pioneers that we've barely begun, and that our greatest accomplishments cannot be behind us, because our destiny lies above us. So some backstory to kind of set the stage here. So Steven Spielberg was actually initially attached right. to Interstellar. For a long time um, with Paramount. Yeah, so he had this original script that apparently was very different than the Nolan version. I'm sure. Um, but after Spielberg moved his production studio DreamWorks from Paramount over to to Disney in 2009, Paramount needed a, a new director for Interstellar. Chris's brother, Jonathan Nolan, recommended him, who joined the project in 2012. Mm-hmm. And the <clears throat> premise for Interstellar was actually first conceived by uh, producer uh, Linda Opst and mm-hmm. theoretical... Uh, physicist Kip Thorne, who yes. collaborated on the 1997 film Contact. Great movie, so, by the way. Yeah, Zemeckis. Shout out to Contact, yeah. One of my, yeah, one of my best friend, John, if he's listening, one of his all-time favorites, so shout out to him, shout out Love to Contact. It. Early in pre-production, uh, Dr. Thorne laid down two guidelines to strictly follow kind of the production of this film and, uh-huh. and the, you know, the conception of it. Uh, nothing would violate established physical laws 
and that all the wild speculations would spring from science right. and not from, quote, the creative mind of a screenwriter. Right. I feel like this was kind of like shots fired from Thorne. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I mean, that's not, fair. Yeah. Yeah. Not the creative mind of a screenwriter. He's like, right. yeah, I saw Inception. That shit ain't flying. Yeah. Like, kind of thing. <laughs> uh, we're not making up any bullshit. How about that? Yeah. Well, being a physicist working in an area which is much cleaner in terms of being able to determine whether you're right or wrong. It's a very humbling process because right. every day you believe something and then discover you are wrong. Every day. <laughs> yeah. Nolan, he stated that from the beginning that he wanted Interstellar to be very different from his past work and mm. was inspired by the movies he saw growing up during what he called the golden age of the blockbuster. Mm -hmm. You know, this is, he's coming off the dark Knight rises. He's been immersed in the Batman world for mm. like nearly 10 years. And this was the first time in his career. He really decided to fully indulge in the genres of science fiction and most notably space exploration. Right. And the story of interstellar, you know, while very complex, the core of the story, it just really focuses on a team of explorers that travel through a wormhole in space and attempt to ensure humanity's survival. This is Nolan's longest movie, clocking in at a whopping two hours and 49 minutes. <laughs> so I saw Interstellar opening weekend. You know, that's been a reoccurring point I feel like we've made on the Chris Nolan Chronicles. Sure. All, basically all of these movies, you know, except for following, you know, <laughs> which we didn't know existed at the time right. when it came out. Um, we saw as soon as we could. Yeah. I remember specifically seeing it in the 70 millimeter IMAX screen at sure. Lincoln Square, nice. Upper West Side of Manhattan. Huh. In that IMAX setting, there were certain, you know, sequences out in space where it felt like I was falling into like eternal space abyss, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. and that's yeah. a pretty sensational feeling in a sure. way. Yeah. You know, Nolan has said he just he's described the IMAX format which he's a huge, you know, fan and advocate for as uh -huh virtual reality without the goggles <laughs> nice. that is yeah. like a very good way of pointing it yeah and just the optimum format in in modern cinema and there's Hoyte, nothing more hd yeah than imax right yeah and just bigger and all encompassing um just the size the sheer size and scale of the frame itself um and hoita van hoitema notably is the new cinematographer of this film uh, the first film without Wally Pfister in that role. And um, he actually did a lot of um, handheld with the IMAX camera, which is super impressive. I mean, they said they had considered this in the past, you know, Nolan and the production team had considered, you know, more shots in IMAX, but they really just had this sort of issue with doing handheld and and small environments with this massive camera that weighs like 100 pounds or more maybe 150 um and hoita van hoitema would just i don't know if you've seen these these images he just sort of you know plop, plops it down on his shoulder and does the handheld rig there's like no shoulder pad no anything it's just this big metal box and he just mm -hmm. gets it right on his shoulder and operates that way so it's pretty cool and a very unique sort of new new way of experiencing IMAX some shots that no one has really ever seen done in IMAX before so it's very cool um and and getting to the length real quick I did there was a period you know I didn't feel this the first time I saw the film but upon rewatch and rewatching it again for this podcast, you know, I could have used maybe a wormhole to skip me through like 30 minutes of this film. I, I don't know. I don't know what part, yeah. but like it does, it does feel long. 
Um, but yeah. I do, I do really love it. That that's coming in my my critiques. Okay, okay, of, sure, of, sure. Of this retrospective, but you know, we both did a rewatch for this, as we've done for every one of Nolan's films in this series. And yeah, kind of. Yeah, some overall takeaways on that rewatch before drilling down on specifics. Um, it definitely felt current in a way rewatching this in the year 2020 Mm. just you know the end of the world factor compared Mm -hmm. with you know the global pandemic that we've been living through also you know there's those those shots of of people masking up during a dust storm you know it's not for a pandemic but that idea of you know having to you know this this protective gear it's a good point um you know that that's something that i couldn't help but be reminded of yeah and you know in our cellar we kind of touched on this like how it is his most emotional film to date it is in a lot of ways kind of this like somber melancholy mm. movie which is Definitely. interesting when you consider just like the scope and scale of what he's trying to tell and the fact that so much of it takes place in outer space and in other you know dimensions and galaxies mm-hmm. um and i think there an argument can be made you know whether the emotion he's trying to convey resonates or not in mm. my opinion it's kind of a a mixed bag but it's definitely the one that he leans into the emotion Mm -hmm. the most of i mean really the core of this story is that relationship between uh you know cooper and murph right Um, and you know when i was rewatching it just you know in my apartment those imax sequences that they shoot you know it fills the whole screen and it's still like very effective and immersive Mm -hmm. even on a much smaller screen in my apartment definitely i mean the, the movie it looks absolutely stunning visually, really as does. most Nolan films do. Yeah. Um, but the, yeah. Speaking of that, this is actually the first uh, 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray that I purchased. Was this Interstellar? Um, 4K Ultra Blu-ray. Oh, that's just. <laughs> so yes, and it was quite something, I must say. Uh, it looks great at home as well. So yeah, I, I totally agree. And and getting back to like the core of this story being about a father daughter relationship and, you know, just a family dynamic and, and love, um, you know, Nolan is a, is a father of four himself. And of course with his, uh, you know, producing partner and wife, Emma Thomas, who we'll talk about pretty soon here, uh, they have four children together and interstellar went into production with the code name Flora's letter and Flora Nolan is the eldest daughter of Nolan mm. and Emma Thomas. And so they, they've had working titles that all sort of relate to uh, one of their children. So the dark Knight's working title was Rory's for- first kiss. Uh, yep. The dark Knight rises was Magnus Rex. They have uh, one of their sons is named Magnus Rex or Magnus. <laughs> um, and he actually plays James, the young blonde James Cobb in inception at the end there. Um, mm. and Inception's working title was Oliver's Arrow. So yeah, their four, their four children's names are working titles for the pair. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's clearly a love letter to family and, you know, children and just very, very deeply considers what it means to be a parent. And, um, you know, it looks into core human emotions, as I've said. So yeah. So massive ensemble cast here in Interstellar, which has mm-hmm. become commonplace for Nolan at this point in his career, just having these really big casts, a lot of familiar names and faces. Uh, Matthew McConaughey plays Cooper in the lead role, really just has this like 
all-American pilot look, very Americana. classical. Yeah, yeah. In, in rewatching, it reminded me kind of like he was like channeling like Harrison Ford mm. in, in a lot of ways. Like that uh-huh. kind of stood out to me. Um, need to point out that the the crying scene, you know, where he oh, watches yeah. the messages uh, his kids have left him. Incredible space. moment. Yeah, yeah, and it's perhaps become the single like that scene is probably has the longest lasting legacy from this movie, Mm -hmm. mostly in the form of, of memes, uh, which, you (laughs) know, for better or for worse, like that, that is one of the most, this is like the the crying McConaughey, you know, like the crying Jordan meme. This is the crying Mm -hmm. McConaughey's uh, shot. I actually, I saw this morning on Twitter, a clip of McConaughey was being interviewed on the ringer podcast, 10 questions with Kyle Brandt. And he talked specifically about this scene. Uh And he said that that in the movie, during the, the, the crying scene, that was the very first take. Um, wow. And he had an interesting quote about, about that saying, basically, like, everything after take one is acting. Like, yeah. take one is where you really are reacting, which I thought was yeah. just um, a really, like, on-the-nose point and uh, something I've never really heard an actor, like, say before. Yeah, I heard so, him on uh, The Old Man and the Three with J.J. Reddick and Tommy Alter. Actually, I listened to it this morning. Uh, it's a brand new episode of that podcast. And he said something very similar. And I, I want to share another anecdote from that podcast later with McConaughey. But um, yeah, and Nolan characterized Cooper as the every in every man, you know, American every man. Um, and apparently when uh, Nolan told that to McConaughey and, you know, pre-production, he goes, he's the every man. McConaughey says, I remember walking away going, who is the every man? Uh, McConaughey apparently just sort of interpreted that as Nolan sees me as an everyman sort of Texan American and, you know, with, you know, a a moral code and, you know, just a decent human decency and kindness. And so McConaughey just told himself, I'm the everyman and just be myself in this movie, basically. I will say too, with McConaughey, and this is a, a reoccurring issue with Nolan films is his dialogue in just like how low and whispery and uh-huh. bassy his voice is like some sound mixing complications, mm. you know, and, and this is an issue he's had in the past where even uh-huh. when I was just like, watching it at home, it was like, well, what do you say? What was that? You yeah. know, um, turn on the subtitles here. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, and, but, and um, real quick with that um, all American, you know, sort of iconography that, that, plays a huge part in this film, like the cornfield that they live on, you know, the farmhouse, oh, yeah, yeah. even though that's shot in the Alberta, heartland. yeah, outside of Calgary in Alberta, Canada, where corn doesn't grow, but uh, it does mm. if Nolan wow. wants it to. Um, <laughs> there's an interesting feature about it. that on the Blu-ray. Um, <laughs> it almost didn't happen. The corn almost didn't take. It was it was a very close call. It's interesting. Four hours on cornfields. We really wanted to get some sense that this corn was being farmed somewhere that it probably shouldn't be and indeed they don't farm a lot of corn where we were farming it in in calgary because uh, the wind out of the mountains can kill it very easily so we were looking in that area and we found through the film commission and through some research one farmer that was off the grid a little bit closer to the canadian rockies you grow corn here you're living on the edge this would be on as i said to them at the time this is kind of on the edge of common sense um, but yeah, obviously the Dust Bowl elements from the Ken Burns documentary, the Dust Bowl, uh, you know, clips from that are used in the film. And, you know, that's another sort of American iconic imagery element to the film. And yeah. Anne Hathaway, uh, you know, she was 
in Dark Knight Rises. Mm-hmm. So she comes back to work with Nolan a few years later in Interstellar. Uh, Jessica Chastain, you know, mm-hmm. who plays older Murph. I will say Murph. Okay. Murph's name. I did the research on this. Uh-huh. Is said. How many times do you think Murph's name is said in this movie? <laughs> a lot. Like, well, what's your what's your what's your guess? If you had to say, like, make him stay, Murph. Make yeah. him stay. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. I've been pretty good at this on previous episodes. I'm gonna say four hundred ten. Oh, <laughs> is that too many? <laughs> You've overshot it. <laughs> okay. I w- I went for it. <laughs> yeah, wow uh it's 79 still okay, a lot okay. not, not 410 <laughs> okay but uh i got excited roll the clip what's going on murph this thing needs to learn how to adapt murph oh, i know what morse code is murph your kids know it especially murph grandpa i'll be back in a couple hours murph i don't think so murph miss hanley's here to talk about murph murph is a great kid murph got into a fist fight with several of her classmates murph is feeling a little tired murph you want to talk science it's not morse murph it's binary hi murph what you do murph 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 yeah murph the murphs are flying high (laughs) a lot of murph so there is a few casting decisions i maybe it's not the decision but just like the performances that like I don't really get, or like just, for example, young Timothy Chalamet, who I I like him a lot. I think he's the next Leonardo DiCaprio, but Mm. this is like a nothing part for him. And, you know, when I was rewatching, like (laughs) as Cooper, McConaughey's character, you know, is leaving for intergalactic space travel, he does this long, you know, goodbye with Merv, Teary, Consoline, you know, this whole thing. Very dramatic. Uh-huh. Then he goes over to his son, young Chalamet. <laughs> yeah. and, and the last, you know, it's kind of just like this pat on the back. The last thing he says, Chalamet says to him is, uh, can I use your truck while you're gone? And yeah. it's like, yeah, sure, whatever, shithead. While I'm gone. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. I want to say, yeah, that maybe they weren't as as, as close. Yeah. But um, that's yeah, pretty I mean, clear you know, throughout. Yeah. And, right, you know, yeah, Casey yeah. Affleck kind of taps into that, you know, sort of the, the other child syndrome. Um, you know, Murph's, yeah. Murph's clearly the favorite here, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. Topher Grace, like, why? Why is Topher Grace in this? Does anyone know? I don't I don't mind. Does. <laughs> I mean, sure. Like, I, again, I got nothing against him, but it's just like, okay. I, yeah. I don't know. I just, why? Um, Matt Damon. Yes. Going to, you know, the heavy hitters, which was a complete secret at the time. Yeah. Wasn't in the credits credits uh, before release or any of the marketing mm-hmm. or even rumored. Damon wasn't in... The promotion for this movie name was never mentioned. Didn't attend any premieres. Mm-hmm. Um, a fact, yeah, like according to research, apart from an article in Variety announcing his casting as an unspecified role, his his role was just completely kept secret until the release of this movie. Huh. Um, it kind of reminded me his reveal. You know, and this is maybe like lower stakes, but David Bowie appearing in the Prestige, which sure. we talked about in part two. Yeah. Um, and look, I'm, I'm a fan of Damon, yeah. you know, just as much as a- anyone. Like I, for me, I don't know if I would have gone with someone that big of a part for like that late a stage, you know, it's in the third act. Mm. It always has kind of like taken me out of the movie and, you know, next year, the following year in 2015, uh, Damon starred in the, the, the Martian. Martian, which was right. a huge hit. It, it, it spawned a lot of terrible like internet jokes of like, go to the YouTube scenes of him and like all of them are just like, oh man he loves being stranded on planets like right, right. Was just before or after he he made the potatoes like oh it's like the yeah. stick is like unbearable that's tough um, yeah but it is cool like how much they kept that under wraps yeah super cool until, 
Mm-hmm. And and for such a big name too, like you said. And I I did it, you're right, it there's a level of like why did it have to be Damon? It does kind of take you out of the film for a moment and you can't help but you know the dynamism between the two McConaughey and Damon in that scene where they like you know hike together on the planet and they're you know we realize yeah and I did kind of enjoy seeing them perform together and I I did uh there was something nice about seeing Damon in this sort of antagonist role which we haven't seen him in very often that was something different and uh you know obviously he meets his fate in that explosion um and that's a really cool scene oh yeah not cool that that he explodes but you know very well done he he kind of had it coming definitely did professor brent tell you that poem before you left do you remember do not go gentle into that good night old age should burn and rave at close of day Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And of course, Sir Michael Caine. Yes. Michael Caine, Michael Caine. <laughs> right. Do the accent. I'm doing the accent at every opportunity. Yeah. In, I mean, in this. Christmas so every episode. <laughs> you know, he's in there, you know, old faithful Michael Caine, yep. you know, he's, he's, he's in that first act. Um, and then I guess, yeah, a little bit throughout, uh, Tars the robot, yes. great casting. No, uh, as we've noted before, you know, well, Bill Nolan's Irwin, movies, they, they aren't. Is that yeah? Who does the who does the voice? So he does the voice of Tars and also a lot of the puppeteering. So it's this guy mm-hmm. Bill Irwin, um, and somebody else plays Case. Uh, Josh Stewart is his name. Um, but yeah, you know, McConaughey calls him slick. That's like a nice little bit going Buddy, on comedy, in the film. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I mean. Yeah. Tars actually brings a lot of heart to the film and a lot of like comedy and some lighthearted moments. And I, I think the dynamic between he and McConaughey on the ship is really needed to try to like break up some of this, you know, just really, really heavy, heavy. stuff that's going on. Um, <laughs> right, right, right. So right. it is nice to have Tars in there. Yeah, Nolan movies, they known for a lot of things, not necessarily known for their sense of humor, but he yeah. does provide some like much needed like dry wit. To, to interstellar totally it, it won't surprise you rob that yeah as you said a majority of the shots of the robot tars were were not computer generated right it was rather a practical puppet which yeah. again salute nolan for you know always going the practical way when yeah you can. well and, and and they had to build a ton of different versions to try to you know make it work for that particular shot like you know and it was made of stainless steel um you know it was hundreds of pounds but they had this like pulley system and compressed air so he would pull a lever with one hand and it would lift one leg and then pull a lever it would lift another leg and that's how it would sort of move about um and then they would combine that with cg when they had when the you know the machine had to do something really dynamic like you know when it spirals through the water on that planet to rescue uh dr brand and hathaway um, some of those other shots that, you know, obviously couldn't be done practically, but they did as much as possible practically, of course. And yeah, it's I think it's a really cool part of the film. And it was one of the the first things that he and uh, Nathan Crowley, his longtime uh, production designer and production designer on this film, started to uh, develop and, you know, put into reality for the film. So the film's visual effects, Nolan had created these in advance, um, 
actually projected them onto screens placed outside the spacecraft during those sequences. So when the hmm. actors looked out of the windows of their vessel, they would be able to see and react to a real environment rather than a green screen. And, <laughs> you know, back in, in part two, we talked about all the reasons why actors are attracted to Nolan projects. Yeah. This is just another example of the unique ways that Nolan tries to enhance the filmmaking experience mm -hmm. for his actors. I thought that was just like a really cool approach to just making it feel as real as possible yeah. on set. If it gives you that like 10% more reality that what I'm saying is, you know, is authentic. Uh, yeah. It makes that little difference. So let's talk about some of, uh, you know, kind of the best sequences. We'll of course get into our CNC awards at the end of this segment. Sure. But the launch sequence just in general is, is so well done. Amazing. I, I love the decision that, you know, Nolan, the cinematographer makes to place the camera like in a stationary position, like on the wing. Oh of, yeah. Know, the ship, That's such like, a great the shot. Size yeah. Of the shuttle, like just the unique angles you get mm -hmm. from that. Um, mm -hmm amazing like sense of scale in yeah. the scene and like the way they use like sound and silence and uh -huh. you know when they're they're floating away like further and further from earth just seeing like the earth like spinning in the distance as they float away like mm -hmm. i just I, I love that yeah nolan said he was influenced heavily by uh koyani Scotzi and the right stuff um mm. Two like very practical in camera things, and Koyana Scotzi like really invented a lot of camera techniques. Uh, definitely, you know, classic Nolan to do as much practically. And you may hear more about that scene later in the mm -hmm. awards. Yeah, the the first docking sequence. So once they're out in space, I mean, yeah. we don't even need to like mention the 2001 Space Odyssey influence. Here. <laughs> like every sci-fi film, it's pretty clear, that's ever been made has been influenced by 2001 sure. to some degree. Interstellar, like one of the most, maybe like a top 10 most blatant examples <laughs> of being influenced by Kubrick's 2001. Right. I, you know, I, a little detail I love in this sequence is how when the, the clamps finally come down, again, they, they come down like without making a sound because, you know, like space. Uh, but right. I, I don't know. I just, I just really like that attention to detail. Yeah. Um, I know, the, uh, the, I know Neil deGrasse Tyson also appreciates that. He, he's a, an advocate of this film just for the hard science fiction elements That's of it. It's a big it. endorsement. And yeah, yeah for the it science. is. Cause Neil, yeah, he doesn't take, you know, he, he you don't take that endorsement lightly because right. he'll call, he'll call you out if you're uh yeah. I mean, it comes, you know, it comes from the mind of Kip Thorne, you know, awarded the Nobel prize in physics in 2017 for his work on wormholes. And you know, uh, yeah, it's mostly, yeah. mostly real. <laughs> the wormhole, speaking of wormholes, the wormhole scene as, the spacecraft approaches that wormhole and then goes through it. Like I remember seeing this in that IMAX format, 70 millimeter for the first time. It mm. just like, it felt like going down like an intergalactic slide or something. <laughs> yeah. or, like it was like a roller coaster, like seeing it in theater. Yeah, the like, literally it gave you the same, yeah, the same sensation. I, I, I've really never seen anything quite like that in a movie. Of course, mm. you know, Again, influenced by 2001. Yeah. You know, definitely. But well, and that was I don't, just mm, the execution of that in the visual, just reality of, of yeah. what we were seeing. It was just like 
really just jaw dropping. And of course, a lot of that was practically done. Apparently, McConaughey was like hanging. Practical wormhole. Yeah. <laughs> well, when he's in the Tesseract and in the bookshelves or whatever, he's like 60 feet off the ground, uh, suspended by wires. And, you know, they, they CG'd it out to look like it's infinity or whatever. But there was a lot of that really in the environment. And yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's ever been a more sort of overt exploration of Einstein's theory of relativity and like the space time continuum on screen, you know, and, and just wormhole science and like, you know, the sucking of time based on like the gravity of another planet, you know, it's like all this stuff that, um, you know, is very, uh, beyond me. Um, I'll, yeah, I'll just say. you usually don't see in a, a blockbuster. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, you know, it, Beyond it, it, most it goes, human beings. It goes deep on that. I think the water planet sequence that was shot in Iceland, and you, you can feel it. Like, again, mm. Nolan continuing with his practical worlds, on location, no green screen, everything tactile, mm-hmm. you know, grounded in realism. I think just the cross cutting in that scene, the tension that's built up as that towering wave approaches. Mm. And this is just like, this is just Nolan like cooking in this scene. You know, it's, I'm always struck by the sheer like height Mm. of the wave that's coming. Totally. The camera just keeps going up and up and up and up and up and up like to the top. And you know, this is with the cross cutting here. I think it's interesting to note that it's all taking place in the same location. A lot of Nolan's cross cutting that he likes to do dark Knight. Dunkirk Inception it, hmm. it's usually taking place all in like separate locations this is all kind of like contained within this planet hmm. but um yeah just just an amazing sequence I, I you know I love to it I think it's at the end of that scene um or is it I, it might be in, in, in another scene hmm. but that dialogue exchange of like what's it gonna cost us like how they in these like decades like right. that's a great line like, yeah. a lot decades I think yeah Anne Hathaway's character says that and yeah. just like the just the reality so crashing powerful. in on like oh yeah. yeah we screw that up so we just lost decades we need the recorder Brand Doyle back to the ranger now we're not leaving without her data get back here now no, we do not have time the second wave is coming we're in the middle of a swell yeah, I think like the second act of this movie, like basically from, you know, liftoff to leaving that water planet mm. is like just pretty great. Pretty, yeah. Uh, you know, one of the yeah. best acts of, right. of, of Nolan's filmography. Right. Um, you know, we, we mentioned, yeah, when Connie's character Cooper meets, you know, Damon's uh, with Dr. Man, mm-hmm. you know, that, that sequence when they're they get into like the tussling and the ship explodes, just the editing there, the music yeah. build up, the cut so to silence. Good the reaction shots of Cooper and Grant. It's like all first class Nolan filmmaking of the highest order. And then one more sequence I wanted to shout out, you know, when the spacecraft is finally approaching the black hole towards the end, you get just a real sense of like, we are on the edges of the universe here. Mm. Like we are out there, right? you know, like in, 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 and you know, that's a pretty just cool experience in, yeah you know in, in revisiting it i want to say something about mcconaughey so on that yeah. podcast the the old man and the three with jj reddick um mm-hmm. he said 
you know, it, apparently it's J.J. Reddick's favorite Nolan film, and he's a big Nolan fan. Um, so he fascinating. He, I, I was wondering what J.J. Reddick's favorite Nolan film is. I mean, <laughs> don't hate on Reddick. He's he's a great. I, I know he's. Yeah, I know. Look, he. Yeah, I I like him too. Hall I, of Famer? <laughs> question mark. Hall. <laughs> sports sports tangent. <laughs> okay, uh, yeah. tangent. Um. So apparently, so he asked he asked McConaughey about Interstellar and and just sort of what that experience was like and. McConaughey goes there isn't there's just no I'm not going to quote him I'm just sort of paraphrasing but there's no other film that people stop him on the street or at events and Mm. they'll just put he says put both hands on his shoulders and like turn him toward the person and say interstellar and he's like (laughs) yeah I know I know I like it too and they'll be like no no interstellar man it changed my life i've seen he's like i've people say they've seen it 19 times and and then he'll just say okay so tell me what you think about it because you probably know it better than i do at this point so yeah yeah it's just it's definitely a very beloved film and uh i know there are a lot of like interstellar stands out there yeah a lot of yeah there are quite there, there's a hive out there that say this is like their favorite Nolan film mm-hmm. or, you know, his best movie, like one of the, you know, I, 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 for me, I wouldn't go that far, but it, it definitely is out there and we, we, we recognize it. Yeah. Uh, the score in this movie. Ooh. So I, I think that this might be the best element of the entire film. Um, I'm yeah, I could agree with that. Hans Zimmer, the composer, you know, longtime collaborator with Nolan. He, he was instructed by Nolan to make a unique score. He told him it's time to reinvent the endless string rhythms need to go by the wayside. The big drums are probably in the bin. Right. And, you know, he didn't provide Zimmer with a script or any plot de- plot details um, for writing the music for the film. And yeah, I mean, the score is just like, it's wondrous. Mm. It's hopeful yet ominous. Mm-hmm. It's mysterious. It's enchanting. I love the use of like, it is like church organs at times. It is. Like in, yeah. It's, oh. yeah. Church organs. Okay. So shout out like, yeah. yeah. Should we talk about that? Um, the church organ. Yeah, so it is, it's recorded in the, uh, what is it called? The temple church in central London. It's the organist. So the church organ there played by Roger Sayer. Um, he's this English, English organist and the director of music at the temple church in central London. And so they re-recorded everything on that, on that organ in location, they set up microphones in the building and just re-recorded the the entire score with the real church organ. And they actually went back and because they loved the acoustics in there and just these old cathedrals are really set up so perfectly for sound. um, They re-recorded the entire orchestra, every instrument they did in that church. So it all had this like uh, universal sound to it. Um, Yeah. And there's some, you know, religiosity to this film and uh the score with the church organ and you Mm. know the mystical sort of metaphysical elements of the story and you could sort of interpret it from that standpoint um there's something interesting like nolan says you know pulling out all the stops you know that that phrase it really comes from an organ where you pull out all of the stops and all of the uh, pipes play at the same time. And it Mm. creates this like massive Nolan, or I think Hans Zimmer described it as almost a dangerous quality to the low notes because it's actually 
physically pushing so much air out into the room you can like feel the vibrations in the in the atmosphere around you of the room um so yeah really really interesting like human element to this score um you know Hans Zimmer is like we really needed it to be authentic and to be recorded by a human being playing the instrument of the organ rather than like the perfect notes of an you know computerized organ so yeah, very fascinating, and uh, there's a featurette on the Blu-ray about the the score, and of course I sounds like con- a lot of lot of bonus. Features I consumed on the that, that with just, uh, you've just, yeah, you've just eaten up. I mean, um, of course. Yeah, I, I just dig again too, just like how much of a contrast it is from past Nolan Zimmer yeah. scores. Like, there's really no percussion of any kind, uh-huh. and I d- I just love kind of how they approached it by like let's let's reinvent here totally and they talked about that they said they've worked on nine years of batman films together and let's just put that aside and this is something new and different and and what you said they uh nolan only gave him one page of notes about the the story and just like some very basic thoughts the only two lines of dialogue on that page were i'll come back and win and that that was like the core sort of impetus to start the That's score. That's all I needed. Yeah, it was like... I'm, There's your creative brief. No, Nolan didn't even tell him that it was a sci-fi film. He didn't tell him the scale and the scope of it. He just said it's a human sort of drama. And I, the the core themes are I'll come back and win. And, and then mm. Zimmer started and yeah, never looked back. And just, yeah, made a masterful score. So a few just like miscellaneous visuals, because this really is, you could definitely make the argument this is the like the most visually stunning film of, of, of Nolan's career. I, I, I love, you know, and rewatch that that opening, the very first shot of like the small like model of the of the shuttle mm. on the, the bookshelf and like the dust coming down. It's just like so it's so quiet and small. And yeah. I just love that decision to have that as like the first shot when you consider the the scale and scope of the film and it, it it's like it ties into the film because it is so much about like these intimate moments in a way mm-hmm. it foreshadows the ending too where that bookshelf, the bookshelf comes into play yeah. you mentioned this earlier um when they're shooting like the interior of the ship and i think these were as you said earlier earlier was using an imax camera like mm-hmm. it, it, it's kind of like handheld it's not like shaky cam but it is yeah. kind of like freely moving around yeah. the ship and kind of like bobbing up and down. Maybe like I, I was thinking to better kind of create the effect of like zero gravity in mm. a way. Mm. And um, yeah, no, I thought that that decision was really cool. And just like the production design in general, I think in Interstellar is really great. I mean, mm. the interior of the space shuttle, the circular design of like that main spacecraft, mm. I, I really dig. I, I like the you know the the costume design of the of the space suits that they wear. Definitely. Wear, so yeah, and um, handheld yeah. camera work just has some humanity to it because it's mm-hmm. not perfect. There's right. You can sort of play a dance with the characters and and move freely and make decisions spontaneously as the camera operator. And yeah, there's imperfections and it it does have this floating feeling to it. But there are like 
human bumps and and flaws in it so yeah it definitely played well for this story so i need to get into some critiques of sure. of, of interstellar a lot a lot to like which we've, we've gone over yeah so but you know there are some things to be critical about so you know in rewatching, you know the first act the exposition like i don't know like i couldn't help but feel kind of felt it feels like both slow and like rushed in a way mm. like for example, you know, Makane, he gets convinced to go to space, leave our galaxy, basically, like, after, you know, 24 hours, after, like, a series of meetings. <laughs> right. I, you know, I understand that they need to, like, move the story along and everything, but, like, it felt like a little... A little rush. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a weird combination of, like... It, but it's also, like, slow. It does take its time in that first uh-huh. act, but does kind of feel rushed. Um, well, rushed in the sense that it's, like, yeah, here's the here's the pitch... Go save humanity right, and yeah. the planet. Kane and it's like just drops, you know, the ultimatum. And by the way, this this rocket is already set to take off tomorrow. <laughs> right. yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, it's kind of like you know, what is it like an Armageddon? Uh, you know, yeah. which you know, not right. to compare it to that, you know, which is one of the most <laughs> ridiculous movies ever. But like, you know, it's like they train him in like three days and they know how yeah. to like you know land on a meteor. That's a um, it's a good rewatch, by the way. <laughs> There is a lot of corny dialogue in this. Maybe the maybe mm. the highest volume of any Nolan movie of mm. like just cheesy dialogue. And look, I, I get it. I think some of it is kind of intentional in a way. Like this movie is very wholesome, mm. but you know, there's just a lot of it. And yeah. I think when they're out in space, the scenes of like cutting back to Earth, like I just think kind of mm. drag. Like, like every the time they cut act. back to yeah. Earth. I just want them to go back to space where things, you know, for me are just like more compelling. Yeah. I mean, I could see that. One flaw that I had was it's a very small thing, a nitpick, but Mm -hmm. you know, that scene when the dust is like blowing through the town and they are, they're at the baseball game in the first act and they have to get back to the house and close the window because the dust is blowing in. Um, When they get out of the truck and are heading inside, there's a mysterious extra man on the porch wearing like a bandana around his face. And it's not John Lithgow. Cause I, I yeah, rewatched oh yeah, it just to make sure John Lithgow's with them as they get out of the truck. It's just some weird mysterious man who like shuffles them into the house and then heads the other direction. I'm like, who the yeah, fuck is, is this guy? Yeah. Like, what's his role there? They're on a yeah, random the, property, uh, like out in the middle right, of right, nowhere. Right. It's not a neighbor. I don't know. It's just a very small nitpick, but I found it funny. And it's like, maybe nolan made a mistake <laughs> is that, right right is that possible? was nolan doing kind of yeah. like the hitchcock thing where he's in you know every movie oh uh, maybe <laughs> so i will say and, and this is my biggest critique of interstellar and and it's similar to my main critique of the dark knight rises um you know which we discussed in part four it just i think it gets crippled under the weight of its like own ambition like it mm. bites off more than it can chew like i respect the hell out of like him just going for it but like one there's like 11 different times when this movie could have ended yeah and that really stood out to me upon mm. upon rewatching you you mentioned that earlier just like they you know it just kind of goes on and on and on in those last like 30 minutes and like we said i know a lot of people who love this movie i mean you know so much to them i'm not downplaying that at all yeah like some people it's their favorite nolan movie that he's made i just think a lot of that third act doesn't work I have to this day, like I really don't have much of an idea and I've read like analysis of it, like 
a straight reading of like on Wikipedia what happens. Like those last twenty minutes, to this day, I'm not I'm not fully sure. Like no. when McConaughey falls into the massive tesseract, tesseract he's like yeah. floating through it. He starts like explaining this like whole revelation. The way he just like performs it, and like the light bulbs are going off in his head. Yeah. Like, and then he gets out cynic. of it somehow, and he's just like floating through space, yeah, and he gets picked I just, up. Yeah. I don't, I don't understand. Like it's, it's just, it's just corny as hell. And like maybe, I don't know. Maybe I, I'm just not getting it. But like the ending has just never made sense to me. I've never been swept up on it. I think it's mm. a little emotionally manipulative, and mm. like. I don't know. Again, I, I respect it, but I just think it goes too far off the rails. Yeah. I mean, I th- you're not alone in that. And yeah, yeah. there's definitely some <laughs> that's very understandable, I would say. <laughs> right, yeah. Right, right, right. So get into the, the, the CNC awards that we've done in every every edition of this Crystal and Chronicles series. So let's start with best moment. What uh, What do you have for your best moment at Interstellar? So I have the scene when Cooper is leaving the excruciating goodbye to Murph as she's sulking yeah. in bed. Not and the Chalamet. No, no. The well, it's the, the, yeah, it's the yeah. goodbye. It's that whole sequence is my favorite yeah, yeah. moment. Um, you know, the quick and efficient goodbye to John Lithgow. He just says, look after my kids, Donald. <laughs> and then, yeah. uh, you know, he gives the truck to yeah, Timmy Shalshal. Uh, he yeah. pulls away. The camera is mounted on the side of the truck, and we see the farmhouse fading away into the distance. He checks under the blanket under the passenger seat to see if Murph is there, like, earlier in the film, but she's not, of course. Mm. Um, then Murph runs out of the house after her dad, like, calling, calling for him. Uh, then we hear go for main engine start T minus 10 seconds. And the, the countdown starts um, the expression on McConaughey's face as he's like, he has one hand yeah, on the, the wheel. Teary-eyedness. Yeah. The t- it's like the most teary eyed face, <laughs> just like the most pain in a man's face, trying to hold back tears like imaginable right, yeah, without fully crying. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's, yeah, yeah. It's like excruciating to see. Um, so I, a funny anecdote about that shot and that gif I actually send that gift to Natalie pretty regularly um, of him driving away and holding back tears. Whenever I leave chili pepper at home in her crate alone for a little while, I just, she'll go, how's chili? And I'll just send that gift. And it's like me driving away from the house. I I feel, I feel 1% of what Cooper must've been feeling during that scene. And that's plenty. (laughs) Yeah. That's a great call. That's a great call. Go for main engine start. T minus 10, nine, eight, seven, six, five, main engine start, four, three, two, one, booster ignition and... My best moment is just the wormhole entering the wormhole sequence like this is just what we came here for yeah this is what we came for yeah you know like it's It's worth the price of admission i'll never forget experiencing this scene in imax and you know we've we've already talked about it but like every time i rewatch it like that's just the most stunning scene to me it's a good choice best performance I'm going with you know, Matthew McConaughey. I don't know about you. Yeah, like I think I think it's gotta be like I don't I don't think you know there's a single like great performance. There's obviously nothing you know. Looking at other Nolan films like you know Ledger and the Dark Knight. I mean, what, what, nothing's better than that. Mm-hmm. Unfair bar, but like 
plenty of great performances throughout Nolan's career. Like, I, d- I don't know if there's like one, you know, like singular performance in this one, but mm. I think it needs to be McConaughey yeah. or Topher Grace, you know, just a memorable, <laughs> no. captivating performance. I think McConaughey gives a really good performance. I mean, but yeah. those two scenes alone, that goodbye scene and the scene when he watches, you know, the 23 years of his kids' videos, I mean, those are yeah. two of like the most emotional scenes in all of Nolan's films. And mm-hmm. yeah. Again, shout out though to Bill uh, Irwin plays Tars, also a great, great side performance. It is, yeah, McConaughey's performance. It just, it is just so like sincere and earnest, and like wholesome in a way. Yeah. Uh, So it grounds the movie in in the reality that it needs. Messages span twenty three years. Play from the beginning. Hey, Dad. Checking in. Say hi. Best soundbite? Okay. What do you have? Number five on the soundtrack called Stay. Uh, the bit of score there. Um, it's it's what is playing during what I just described as my best moment. Um, that whole sequence. And then it's also number 15 on the soundtrack. A different version of it in all caps. The remix. Um, it plays when Cooper and Murph are finally reunited as she you know, the old uh, uh, Murph lay on her deathbed with her family around her. It gets me like choked up just listening to it on Spotify and shit. Damn. And and shout out to my boy Roger Sayer on the church organ. Really good moments. Yeah, church organ's getting a lot of love. On this <laughs> Why not? What about you? So What's my your best soundbite? soundbite. I mean, it is an amazing score which we've broken down, but I'm going best soundbite is the the absence of sound. Yeah. The, those decisions to go like silence in space. Just the way that's deployed just to add to the atmosphere mm-hmm. and realism of being space bound, I just think is really well done. Mm-hmm. And that that that's what I'm I'm going for. Best soundbite. I love that. The WTF, the what the fuck word. Yeah. I, 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 for me, I, I'm going very practical here. And that is like Cooper's like it looks like a flimsy spacecraft, right? Like at this <laughs> point when they're in the third act. And he's going through a freaking black hole. Right. And like a hailstorm in the black hole. And that you just like, it's not going down. Like the, the, the plane is intact. It gets through it. Like I just, I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that that is, that is you're thinking, unreal. You're thinking a, bolt, a, a piece of that siding comes off of that vessel during that journey. Yeah. You're in a black hole. Like <laughs> right. I, I just, I, I don't know. As far as you know, quote unquote realistic as this movie can be like, that is a moment where I'm just like, I ain't buying it. Yeah. No, I, I, I feel like the bolts would just like fly out of the, the side panels like and disintegrate yeah. in <laughs> right, like right. a millisecond. Yeah. You know, it's, that's a good point. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I'm going with a similar, you know, we kind of talked about it, but just Cooper landing in the Tesseract, uh, after going yeah, through the just, wormhole just the whole Tesseract. Yeah. And just like, what the fuck's going the on there? Um, he, uh, he, leaves the pod the escape pod that you talked about and ejects himself into oblivion like into the fourth dimension of time uh so 
I mean, what the fuck is going on as he's like falling through the Tesseract and he somehow like stops himself? Like, how does that work? Um, you know, just entering the fourth dimension is a what the fuck moment in itself, just saying it out loud. Um, and then he obviously starts manipulating the books and knocking things off the shelves and then, you know, realizes that he was the one that sent himself the code and the dust and leads them to NASA in the first place and saves humanity. And yeah, there's a lot going on there. So most lasting image. Okay, this is a big one for me. Nice. The spacecraft that floats by Saturn. <laughs> yes. It looks like a speck of dust. Yeah. I remember saying so cool. out loud to myself and rewatching, like, that's the money shot. Mm. I just love the sense of scale that Nolan provides here, the accuracy of it, the perspective. Like, oh, there's humans inside that speck of dust mm. that's floating right by Saturn. Right. The rings of Saturn look so vivid and stunning in that shot. Like, this is, you know, this movie is a series of just like incredible images, and that's my personal favorite from this film. Mine is Cooper watching 23 years of messages from his kids. Mm. Um, the acting in that moment is just impeccable and so powerful. And it's just that face of McConaughey crying and just, just really weeping. And it's like the most, the most sort of profound level of sadness, but also like joy to, to see your kids grow up in, the span of an hour, you know, it's just like impossible to kind of fathom. Um, and that, that image just always pops into my head when I think about this movie. All right. So that's going to wrap our interstellar segment. Yeah. Um, before we transition over to Dunkirk, let's, let's pay some, some love to, uh, to Emma Thomas, who, you know, we've definitely mentioned throughout the Chris Nolan Chronicles. Right. Um, but you know, I feel like we haven't given her her proper due, you know, Emma Thomas, of course, is, the wife of Christopher Nolan. She's the producer of every single one of his films yes. since 1997. Um, you know, they met studying together at University College London mm -hmm. and then forged this creative partnership that's just been an absolute force in Hollywood for the last 20 years. Yeah. They, they run the production company uh, Syncope mm -hmm. together. And there's just like no doubt that you know, Thomas has enhanced Nolan's success. Like Definitely. she's a familiar name in, in Hollywood, but she doesn't get, you know, enough credit and mm -hmm. I think deserves more recognition. Mm -hmm. um, you know, she's a producer that doesn't just like sit back and just like, you know, handles like the finances. Uh -huh. Like, you know, she's not detached from the filmmaking process. Yeah. She's very hands-on on the set, you know. In um, pre-production. Yeah. All, all levels of production, even making some, you know, post-production decisions and insight and suggestions. And yeah, she definitely gets her hands in all elements of the filmmaking process. And it no doubt is like a huge influence on, on what we see on the screen and, you know, is such a important force to Christopher Nolan to allow him to do what he does and just enables Everything to work, yeah, basically. Yeah. I, I guess that's a good way of putting it. You know, she said, like, her main role on, on set is to facilitate an atmosphere and environment where, you know, no one can focus on just the creative aspects and she can manage, you know, the millions of other obstacles right. one faces during production. I think it's notable, too, that, you know, the two of them are in, like, lockstep with the way they kind of resist certain 
trends, you know, for mm-hmm. example, you know, favoring film over digital, IMAX over 3D, practical effects over CGI. Mm-hmm. Like they're just completely on the same page with that. And I think it just like, you got to consider the benefits of having, you know, your wife as your like producer and creative partner. Yeah. Like, she can be honest with Nolan in a way that no one else can, like unafraid to give it to him straight, knows him better than anyone else. Like, I think that's just a very important dynamic when you think about the impact that, you know, Emma Thomas has made on on Nolan's success and, and career. And just to, you know, they have four children together, as I said earlier, and mm. she says that they come to set a lot and, you know, it allows Nolan that sort of freedom to have this family life mixed in with the crazy hours of film production. Um, Obviously they're not on set every day, um, but you know, just being able to share this, this experience together must be so magical. Like it's really one of the kind of magical Hollywood stories and relationships when you, when you think about it, Um, just the fact that they're working partners and have had so much success and such a full, life outside of film you know as well so it's just really like heartwarming to think about on that level and it's it's pretty awesome and you know she's she's a member of the board of trustees of the academy museum of motion pictures um she's she was a script supervisor throughout the 90s before you know nolan was making uh you know bigger films and you know has been there every step of the way and yeah yeah, so i don't know i I think i think it's just really important to talk about um that relationship between a producer and a director and and this is has to be considered one of those best relationships in the industry the decision to to shoot the film you know to a large extent in imac with imax cameras um came out of our desire to make this film bigger and better than the last one and and we were looking at many ways of doing that. I think that we expanded the story significantly and just the way we shot the film on location as opposed to on stages, I think really helped with the scope of the film. But then there's one thing that Chris had always wanted to do since he was a kid was to shoot with IMAX cameras. So let's get into Dunkirk here. Mm. Yes. What are you doing? You know where we're going. Into war, George. I'll be useful, sir. One of ours. He's on me. I'm on him. The ship's about to leave. Down you go. Oh, yeah. All right. The Dark Knight is my favorite Nolan movie. Dunkirk is Nolan's best film. Like I, I don't even think that it's it's subjective at this point. I it is fact. I agree. And Every I said this second. last night, and so did Natalie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Every second of Dunkirk is compelling, and Nolan's execution has just never been better or more precise. And, you know, when I was rewatching it, like, it is in a kind of weird way when you consider the subject matter, like, a fun, like, fun to rewatch. It's like, entertainment. It's harrowing yeah. suspense, yeah. but it's a freaking ride. It is. This movie. So this is Nolan's first movie that's based on historical events. All of his other films have either been original scripts, remakes, short story adaptations, comic books, novels. And this is the third Nolan film written entirely by him. The others were following in Inception. Mm -hmm. 
his first war movie ever and his first period film, mm-hmm. uh, or yeah, going back you know, since The Prestige, the Prestige. in 2006. Yeah. This movie, you know, we just talked about Interstellar, his longest film ever. Mm-hmm. This is clocking in just at one hour and 46 minutes. A tight one hour and 46. It feels shorter yeah. than that. Yeah, because it's just blistering Ripping. Yeah. in your face, yeah. like never takes a second off. Uh, his shortest movie since his debut following. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, Nolan goes from his longest movie ever to something, you know, the shortest. I think you see this in, in filmographies where they're like, you know, I, I want to make something a little bit just more compressed and tighter than my last project. Mm-hmm. Nolan said, quote, like, I wanted Dunkirk to be as intense an experience as possible mm. and therefore as lean, stripped down and short an experience as possible. You mm-hmm. can only sustain the degree of suspense and tension that we wanted from the film for so long before you exhaust the audience. And, you know, I find this notable because as much as I enjoy Nolan's films, most are a bit too long. You know, mm. you can always find scenes that you could, you know, best left on the cutting room floor. You We've talked hop about into those a wormhole instances. and skip through. <laughs> right. Yeah. Through this, this series, that is not the case in Dunkirk. This baby is lean yeah. and mean. Yes. Uh, I wouldn't cut any of it. And, had eight Oscar nominations, uh, tied with Dark Knight and Inception and being the most Oscar-nominated movie mm-hmm. in, in Nolan's filmography. You know, I it recall... It won three like the be- uh, Best Sound Editing, Best Sound Mixing, and Best Film Editing. Yeah, it was nominated for Best Picture and Nolan's first uh, nomination for Best Director, notably. On, you know, one of our favorite podcasts, The Rewatchables, uh, Quentin Tarantino, uh, who was a guest uh, yeah. on, on, on last year called uh this his second best film of the decade or second favorite film of the decade so that's that's pretty high praise from you know another great filmmaker i have to say this was a very bad omission on my top 20 of the 2010s um same definitely should have been on my list we we, we both screwed up you know i put inception on there this is better than inception i you know i probably would have put both those in my top 20 of the decade Mm. but yeah this is this is definitely top 10 of of the decade that we just, you know, lived through. So, you know, this came out in the summer of, uh, 2017, right? Yes. Um, and, July 21st. you know, we were, we reviewed this on must go faster yeah. after opening weekend. I remember we recorded the pod, just like scheduling conflicts, like at like 7am your time, which right. is like the earliest you ever had to record. Uh-huh. I, you know, I didn't huh. love Dunkirk when I first saw it in theaters, like everyone else I was with seeing it with like raved about it afterwards, uh-huh. just like, the story structure for me for it was just like a little too fractured. Mm. I rewatched it a few months later, and then you know, as we were prepping our best movies of 2017 pod, it just like all clicked for me. Yeah, it was my number you two know, on that list behind Phantom Thread. Yeah, it was yeah my number six. Um, and you know, it was released in the summer, which you would think might be an odd time mm. to release a a bleak war movie as opposed to the winter. But you know, Emma Thomas said of the decision, you know, for all of its more serious subject matter, this film really is a theatrical experience and it really is a suspenseful action oriented film. Mm -hmm. So to us, it felt like the summer was absolutely the logical place for it. Mm. We've come to a point where we feel like the summer movie has to be a superhero movie or a sequel. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe that to be the case. So, you know, understand that rationale. And this movie had the widest 70 millimeter widescreen format release in 25 years. Wow. 
and it's it features the most footage shot on 65 millimeter IMAX, IMAX yeah. film stock to date. Yeah, an hour and 19 minutes of the final cut huh. uh, being footage that was shot on IMAX film. Man, I mean, Jesus, that's like it's so immersive it, and amazing to watch. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and that beats out previous Nolan movies, The Dark Knight Rises, which had an hour and 12 minutes mm-hmm. in its final cut. So yeah, the IMAX is just coming on strong. Yeah, and it's like the, this is like the prototypical, you know, he, Nolan has worked with his brother Jonathan on a lot of their, you know, best scripts, but this is written, as you said, and directed by just Chris Nolan and produced by Christopher Nolan and Emma Thomas, his wife, and cinematography by Hoyta Van Hoytema, um, you know, following up Interstellar, and he also shot Tenet, um, score by Hans Zimmer, production designer Nathan Crowley, edited by Lee Smith. It's like it's like the all-star team of Nolan. I mean, and most of his films are this team, but um, it just feels like, I don't know, everything kind of clicked in place, and like this this team just came together for this sort of magical you know, war film, something totally different. Obviously interstellar we said was grounded in reality. This is like actually reality. And I think it's handled masterfully. And I really hope that Nolan gets back to this mode and, and makes more films along this line. Yeah. I mean, it's a story of just like pure survival. Right. And basically, you know, it's about true events during world war two allied soldiers from, from Belgium, the British Empire and France are surrounded by the you know German Nazi army and they're evacuated during this fierce battle during World War II. You know, there's no major twists mm-hmm. or character revelations in this movie which, you know, had been a hallmark of Nolan's career prior. Mm-hmm. So this is a different kind of story. I think, you know, in the absence of these plot twists, these heady themes like it helped him really double down on the direction and focus on making it just like as visceral as possible, yeah. which paid off in the end result. Like this is a movie about, you know, showing, not, not telling. Yeah. Um, and, and they really got themselves in the, in the weeds, you know, they, they shot it on location on the beaches of Dunkirk and, um, you know, in the ocean. And there are like some really, fascinating images of nolan like wearing his classic attire you know like a scarf and like a nice looking sport coat and he's like handling a massive machine like he got his hands dirty and and did stuff for this production and they rebuilt the mole to look like it did you know in 1940 and uh you know apparently the ocean was like destroying it on a daily basis and they had to like keep rebuilding parts of it um and yeah hoita van hoitema was you know saddling up that 150 200 pound IMAX camera on his shoulder doing operating that way they put it on you know the nose of these planes and did really crazy stuff and and got some iconic images that will you know go down in cinema history story structure here so we have the beach which takes place over one week at sea it takes place over one day and in the air which takes place over one hour mm-hmm. And just Nolan cross cuts between all three throughout the entire film. Yeah, it's called you the know, mole. Speaking about in in on on screen, they call it the mole. And the mole, and right. th- I wanted to say just on that before you dive in, it's the classic. It, this is like the prototypical 
Nolan establishing the rules right up front for the film and about what we're about to watch and how the editing technique works. Um, I just, it's like very overt Nolan laying the rules out for the audience up front. Mm -hmm. But very simple yeah. rules that can be explained in like, you know, a few yeah, words. Yeah, like basically. eight words. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So Nolan speaking to a premier magazine about the narrative structure said, you know, for the soldiers who embarked in the conflict, the events took place on different uh, temporalities on land. Some stayed one week stuck on the beach on the water. The events lasted a maximum of a day. And if you're flying to Dunkirk, the British Spitfires would carry only an hour of fuel. So, you know, to mingle mm. these different versions of the story, uh, you know, they, they just had to mix it up. Hence, the complicated structure, mm -hmm. even if the story is very simple. He said, you know, do not repeat it to the studio. It will be my most experimental film. Yeah. That's like really cool juxtaposition. You know, it's all based on historical events, mm -hmm. but Nolan still in a way made it, made it a know, Nolan his, film. His most experimental film. Yeah. And a and, very, very like art house film in a lot of ways. Yeah. Just because of that sort of uh, interesting technique. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this movie is a lot about kind of the moral victory, you know, just, you know, the history of it, like the success of the evacuation allowed Churchill to impose the idea of a moral victory, mm. which allowed him to galvanize his troops like civilians and to impose a spirit of resistance while the logic of the sequence should have been that of surrender, mm. you know, military, you know, from a military standpoint, it's a defeat, but on the human plane, it's a colossal victory. Mm. And, you know, in rewatching, I was like, this movie is just all about like, bad, trying to make really bad situations and circumstances are just like less worse mm. in a way mm -hmm. just trying to survive yeah just like, trying to example, like get to your next piece of toast with jam on it <laughs> yeah i gotta i gotta i gotta i gotta bid on the toast with jam later uh the, like the smallness of the victory for example in the first act of like of going over that bridge like placing the one plank of wood so they can carry oh the yeah body yeah over the structure and everyone yeah. like cheering like right. ah, and it's like it's just such a small victory, small victory, but like for morale, yeah. it was like huge. Acting so triumphant over something so small uh -huh. shows how dire the stakes are. Yeah. You know, the symbolism of like the medical ship sinking, right. that fatalism, it kind of reminded me of like the symbolism of the Dark Knight, like the fire truck on fire mm. in a way. I don't know, I was mm. kind of reminded of that. But, mm. you know, with Dunkirk, as with, you know, pretty much every Nolan film that we've discussed, like, but more so here than any other movie, it just feels so real, and yeah. I I think like it's the best illustration of Nolan grounding his movies in realism. Mm -hmm. It's also the you know the attention to detail, you know one specific detail that I always love in this movie is like marking the fuel like yeah. data with like chalk on the cockpit, I love you know that. kind of thing. Yeah, like, how many real boats were used in this? Like hundreds and hundreds yeah, yeah i mean it's crazy they also used a ton um, of cardboard cutouts of people and objects on the beach to kind of fill it out and make it look uh you know buyable as four hundred thousand people stranded on the beach but yeah it, that's a, a small fraction of cardboard cutouts uh, they had thousands of extras on that beach and you know there's just a level of authenticity that makes this film feel real and 
Um, you know, the subjective point of view of the main character, Tommy, um, played by Finn Whitehead, uh, that that's definitely an ele- a, a huge factor in that is just like we experience so much of it from his eyes and right. through his his experience and also through the experience of, you know, Tom Hardy's character, um, Farrier. And just it just feels so subjective all the way through, even though we're seeing it through these different uh, subjective viewpoints they all kind of culminate into this uh experiential thing happening in front of you and you feel like you you know kind of by the end of the film you you have a scope something about the way that the time is manipulated you have a a sense of what this experience must have been from these different vantage points yeah it's it's very really creative and uh kind of one of a kind i love to in the very beginning just like this mini prologue mm. where it's just these like simple short statements it's almost like poetic and lyrical all mm. it says is the enemy has driven the british and french armies to the sea trapped at dunkirk they await their fate hoping for deliverance for a miracle uh-huh. like that's it you know i'm not a, a gamer mm. i didn't either are, are you like no. but i felt like it was kind of the start of like a mission in a video game yeah yeah like these are the circumstances very clearly ready set go yeah and it's such a it's a contrast to something like inception you know another movie a nolan movie that we love that takes like an entire first act mm. to set up the story dunkirk takes 20 seconds right yeah and it's like you're in um and i think that plays to the strength of you know the overall experience of watching it the enemy tanks have stopped why why waste precious tanks when they can pick us off from the air like fish in a barrel? There are 400,000 men on this beach. Performance-wise, so, you know, after first-hand accounts of the Dunkirk evacuation, evacuation, Revealed to Nolan how young and inexperienced the soldiers were, he decided to Mm -hmm. cast mostly just young and unknown actors Mm -hmm. for the beach setting. There were around 1,000 extras used in this movie. There's still some old Nolan favorites. You have, you know, Killian Murphy, Tom Hardy, Mm -hmm. Sir Michael Caine, Michael Caine, on the voice cameo. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Kenneth Branagh. (laughs) Yeah, Kenneth Branagh. uh, Mark Rylance, who I think was his first, uh, you know, who's, you know, well-known. Great performance. Well-established actor. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Harry Styles yeah. from, uh, you know, uh, you know, pop stardom uh-huh. is, is, is in this and is, you know, very good. Yeah. Um, so scenes and sequences, you know, I just got to hit on hit on some of these. I mean, mm-hmm. there's so much just <laughs> awesome, you know, cinema in, in, yeah. in Dunkirk. The scenes just in the air, man. Like, yeah. it just got me love levitating it. I love when it. I'm watching this. Um, when the horizon line turns with the the plane and we see like the greenish blue ocean juxtaposed against mm. the sky. It's like so beautiful in a way, you know, it's just Dude, imi- the sea. Yeah. Okay. I, the sea in this movie, this is a big thing that stood out to me on the yeah. rewatch. Like the sea is like its own, like recurring character in mm. the movie. It takes up so much of the frame, mm-hmm. the vastness, the sparkling turquoise blue. Yeah the sun glistening uh-huh. off it like is the sea the mvp of this movie i don't know it, yeah. it might be like it just how much the watery landscape mm-hmm. is a part of this movie's visual experience 
really stood out to me and the difficulty I, of shooting on the ocean and keeping steady shots like i don't really know how they did some of these shots and kept the horizon line stable and yeah it's like really remarkable feat of uh you know cinematography and and just technology um at the forefront and yeah it's it's very masterful the intensity of the scene where the medical ship is sunk by torpedo, yeah. all the soldiers trying to escape, like drowning in the ocean, trapped in this boat, like these like rooms that they're in. The like, claustrophobia dr- of that. Oh yeah, drowning in the ocean at night, just like worst night. That's right. n- nightmare fuel right, right. there. Um, you know, I believe it is in the third act where you know the main character he's covered in oil. Uh-huh. He like submerges himself underwater to avoid like effing bombs being dropped on him. And then he, you know, to escape like the sound, the deafening sound of guns firing at him, you know, he goes underwater, then has to go back above water. Cause he's drowning of course. And then the ocean is like lit on fire because yeah. of like the oil. It's just like, again, like these terrible circumstances, like one after another. Yeah. Go, 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 go. That's an incredible sequence. Um, a scene that really stood out to me, again, yeah, on, on rewatches after the medical ship sinks. Mm-hmm. Those shots of like the troops having to like come back to the beach. Oh yeah, and just yeah. like this droning, ominous score. Uh-huh. These wide shots, this feeling of helplessness. Like you didn't get far, and you're back to where you started. You're back to square one. Yeah. Like it's yeah. just like so helpless. They see the fellow soldier uh commits suicide by just like oh, walking yeah. out into the ocean like yeah just the direness is like so striking yeah. and yeah i mean the, the scene where the the plane crashes in the ocean like just the camera like tracking it all the way down into the water with the pilot mm-hmm. escaping out of the cockpit once he's there mm-hmm. and like trying to like burst out like that again is just like super suspenseful yeah. and then of course like tom hardy's jet yeah gliding through the air weightless amazing you know, when he kind of saves the day at the end, like all the troops are looking up at the plane, like it's this, yeah, like this, like angel sent from heaven. Oh man, or when they all cheer for him when he shoots down that plane that's about to take out the mole, and Kenneth Branagh's mm-hmm. character, you know, closes his eyes, like accepting right. his fate, and then, you know, Tom Hardy's out of gas and the propeller is not even spinning, but somehow he shoots down that plane, and yeah. they they all cheer for him from the beach. That that moment every time I watch this gives me a full body like chill and just goosebumps and. It's so so dramatic and and even getting back to the very beginning of this film we see finn whitehead's character and everyone he's with dies and he he's the one man who escapes the town and gets out onto the beach that we see and you know just just from that beginning it's like this one man's experience he you know, tries to use the bathroom on the beach. And, you know, Natalie was quick to point out that he didn't even wipe. And like, what's that all about? The We see the French man that he travels with throughout the journey of this film, you know, changing into the British soldiers, dead British uh, soldiers uh, uniform so he can try to get on one of these uh, British escape vessels. And yeah, it's like, it's just the reality of that experience and just like putting yourself in that mindset so quickly. Yeah. And the score is so great. I'm sure we're going to talk about it in the soundbite, but you almost don't even hear the score. 
I noticed this last night. I, I, I was doing research for the podcast and looking at Hans Zimmer's work here. And then I watched the movie and I don't even like think about the score once because it's so like perfectly just suspenseful. Even though it's constant. It's it like constant. literally doesn't yeah. take a scene off. But you can't but... take your eyes off the movie or even like stop to think about the score. It's so it's so like right. baked into the visuals perfectly and the suspense right, right, right. and the drama it's of the though. editing technique. It's it's just like it's one of the one of the most <laughs> profound movies when you consider it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, the score, Hans Zimmer, Nolan, six collaboration yeah. that they've had together. Like those ticking sounds, they serve, you know, this crucial theme in the score. Uh-huh. They're actually recorded from uh, one of Nolan's own pocket watches. Right. And then he put the sounds into synthesizers and then altered them in different ways for the soundtrack. Uh-huh. It doesn't stop ticking during the entire movie mm. until the characters of Alex and Tommy are sitting safely on the train at the end. Mm. About 30 Dunkirk survivors who were in their mid-90s attended the premiere in London in that mm. summer of 2017. And, you know, they were asked about the movie. They said they felt it accurate, accurately captured the event, but the soundtrack was actually uh, louder than the b- bombardment at times. <laughs> so, like, yeah, yeah I mean, it, it's... Right, right. You know, like, as you said, it, but it does kind of, like, seep into the background what you were saying before. Yeah, you don't does. even notice it, but it it's does remarkable. never, never stop. Yeah. Um. A few just other miscellaneous shots that I love. The the very opening with the flyers falling to the ground. Oh, yeah. I feel like it kind of just like <laughs> foreshadowing the bombs that are about to just drop. Like yeah. the impending terror, like the, the stillness in the air. <laughs> Emma Thomas had an interesting anecdote about that shot in an interview I read where she said she, she can't help but think about this moment when uh, Nolan was up on like a ladder or something and dropping the flyers in a very particular way into the top of the frame because he wanted them to be falling perfectly through the frame. It's like, yeah, it just shows the letter, the level of craft that went into every shot. Right. Right. The torpedo that darts into the medical boat, like that's like coming at it, like some stealth. Oh yeah. In the water in a a way. Yeah. 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 That always gets under my skin and just like, those reoccurring desolate vast landscape shots of the beaches just pairs pairs nicely with the just constant dread mm. that is just strung throughout the entire film and the dread of the really... scale of the ocean you know it's like they keep saying home like you can yeah. almost see it you know it's right, right there across the channel but then we see shots of the ocean it's like it's so vast and massive and just scary you know the ocean scares the shit out of me and most humans um <laughs> So, yeah. yeah, even though yeah, a lot of it is is in you know broad daylight. Just yeah, yeah, the pure just depth of the ocean. I mean, yeah, it's again, yeah, that is the ocean is you know it, it's it's its own character in the, in this movie. Yeah, um, I also really like the way the smoke at the mole is used, kind of like as mm. this marker of time and geography that mm-hmm. kind of just shows up again and again in in the film. And yeah, you mentioned the 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 white bread with jelly again another mm. just like great detail mm-hmm. have you ever just eaten white bread with jelly before i mean i'm sure i have um yeah, yeah. it's not like a go-to of mine but 
I feel like in college, like there was jam. like one night where I just like saw you on the couch eating just like white bread with jelly. I mean, you know, like, <laughs> sure. Whatever. It's th- it's three a.m. After sixteen um, natty lights, I'm sure. <laughs> right. I'm sure I did that. <laughs> right, right, right. So the film's ending. You know, Nolan said it brings you back to this personal moment. He's trying to process the words that you know the character has just read from this eloquent politician. He's trying to reconcile that with his experience and. He said, hopefully the audience is trying to do the same thing through his eyes. So mm. it comes back to this very small thing. feel like this is kind of a microcosm of the whole film in the sense that it's this, you know, grand devastating event that's unfolding in front of you, but it's being interpreted through the lens of a bunch of very different personal perspectives. So I really yeah. like kind of just how quiet the ending is yeah. in a way, you know? Yeah, me too. I agree. So let's... uh you know, we freaking love Dunkirk. It's a great and, movie. You know, highly recommend let, rewatching. I mean, we we recommend rewatching yeah. all of these as you listen to the podcast. That that'd be great. But uh, this one, I think, um, I feel like everyone should rewatch it's the this crowning every few years. Yeah, achievement of of his career today. Yeah. I would say. So let's get into just the awards here. You know, best moment for me. You know, it's got to be one of the dogfights in the sure. air. Like I'm gonna go with the first one. You know, whereas a viewer, you're just introduced to like the insane choreography and staging of these aerial sequences. Uh-huh. I love how they use like all three planes and, you know, Tom Hardy's like fleet. Yeah. It ends with the German plane crashing into the sea. Mm. Uh, you know, Hardy says, you know, yeah, he's down for the count. You mm. know, like, he, mm-hmm. you know, he, he's such a minimal dialogue, so but good. it's like he's so like cocky and, yeah. you know, confident. Um, that, yeah, I think that's my, my favorite, you know, sequence and moment in the movie. Yeah, he's down for the count. Fortis leader, one bandit down. Yeah, that's a great one. And Jack Loden, who plays Collins, the other pilot, another great performance. And every time they cut to that shot of Tom Hardy's, like, eyepiece or, you know, his scope... And we see him like framing up and trying to aim right. for the plane. I'm like, get it. Yeah, it's, it's so like, yeah, a, a right. visceral. Like a and you're like rooting for it. Yeah, it's so great. Um, I love that choice. Um, I'm going with the sequence that we talked about already with the naval ship uh, sinking when they finally get on it. And, you know, they eat their, their toast with jam and it gets torpedoed by the German U-boat. And, you know, we see it coming through the water and it's just like yeah. so abruptly rips a hole in the side of the ship and it's like instantly fills up with the ocean you know it's like in the matter of 10 seconds it's full of water and just sinking rapidly and you know it's at night heighten heightens the tension and dread of the scene yeah and it's just to me like just an amazing sequence and you know kind of one of a kind so best Best performance. performance yeah I'm going with uh, Killian Murphy here, who mm. just, it's a Nolan staple, you know, yeah. as an actor in a Nolan film. And I feel like it represents an important perspective in the movie, like this mm. shell-shocked, you know, soldier, like what right. PTSD can, can really do to you. Right. And, you know, the characters in Dunkirk are not ones that are really, you know, developed or fleshed out or have much of an arc. That's not the point of this movie. But, mm. you know, um, Murphy's character is the most interesting and does kind of have like the most of like an arc of any character Mm -hmm. in it. And yeah, I I just love like what he kind of, 
I don't love what he represents in the movie. It's it's very like sure. sad in everything, but it's 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 a it's a perspective that is very necessary, and I think <laughs> you know he he plays it extremely well. Yeah, when George asks uh, Mr. Dawson, Mark Rylance, he's like, "Is he a coward?" <laughs> it's like, "No, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's shell shocked." Um, yeah, <laughs> Killian Murphy is credited on IMDb as quote shivering sailor. That's his name. <laughs> That's it. Okay. So, um, aptly put. Yeah. So I'm going with Finn Whitehead as Tommy. Uh, he was 19 years old at the time of filming. He's 23 now. Um, so it's such a realistic portrayal of one of these countless very young men serving in World War II and the subjective point of view, as I said, of his experience throughout this film. And, you know, just the film really hinges on this performance. He's the first person or one of the first people we see in the town. And he's the very last image of the film is his face on the train. Um, We experience so much of the film through his eyes and he has just a few speaking lines, but he carries the weight of the experience in his expressions and reactions to situations going on around him. And yeah, so I'm going with Finn Whitehead. Our thankfulness at the escape of our army must not blind us to the fact that what has happened in France and Belgium is a colossal military disaster. So what's your best soundbite? I mean, this movie is just like a symphony of just intense sounds. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going with the looming sound of doom that is the the sound of the like the German dive bombers like approaching. Mm. The constant acceleration of it actually reminded me of like joker's theme from from the dark knight um uh, that that's mine i would say like dialogue wise like the tom hardy line like i'm on him yeah you know, yeah <laughs> is, is, is definitely the best line in the movie like that's the good. distortion through like the pilot mask and everything but yeah that like the, the looming just like mm-hmm. like it just like it, it's like this wailing screaming terrifying sound that you yeah. hear a lot throughout the movie um that's my best sound bite what about you so I'm going with this auditory illusion created by Hans Zimmer, and it's not his original idea. It's been done many times in, in music history, but it's called the shepherd tone. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of this, Ben. It's three tones separated by an octave and layered on top of each other. And as they play, the higher pitch gets quieter, the middle pitch stays loud, and the lowest pitch becomes audible and louder. And it creates this illusion of a sound constantly rising into infinity and never cresting. And it's just looped together throughout the score. And it just it's it's this like constant rising action of sound and um when they're looped together like that it's apparently called a shepherd reset glissando uh and apparently it's in the prestige a bit of score in that and it's used in the bat pod sound in the dark night it's the shepherd tone yeah so that's my favorite soundbite Shout out to the Shepherd Tone. All right. WTF. I feel like it's difficult to do for this movie since it's all based on true events. But for me, okay. At the climax, when the final German dive bomber is approaching, 
what exactly does Mark Rylance's like sailboat do? Does he do anything to cause the plane to crash? Like oh. it's shot in a way, like it's shot in a way that makes it seem like they maneuver their boat in some way that makes it go down. Like he's like, wait till he commits to his line now. Yeah, no, I think he, I think he's avoiding being shot down. So at okay. the very last second, he turns. Okay, and, yeah, yeah. Or his son like yanks on the, right. the steering and and they turn a little bit yeah it, i don't know it's just like the way that that is like kind of sequence is confusing because yeah after the plane crashes it cuts to hardy's jet you know so he's the one that took it out mm. but like why the emphasis on rylance's boat yeah you know what did the boat do i guess the boat was just trying to not get annihilated by this this you know this plane as as you mentioned like I thought it was like, oh, did they cause like the waves to ripple in a way that put the plane off course? Uh, like I, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. know. I rewatched this scene like ten times on YouTube. Yeah. I was like, what? What did the boat do? And right, I, right. I don't know, maybe you just explained it, but that's mine. Yeah. Um, well, mine's the same actually. It's the. It's not the exact like how did he get yeah. shot down, but it's that moment, that sequence. Um, it's when the timelines start to align. When Mark Rylance's yeah. pleasure yacht, the Moonstone, is picking up the men who had just abandoned the boat that they. You know, the the men that were following, they drifted out to sea uh, during the rising tide and it's getting pelted with bullets and, you know, leaking, um, sinking. And the oil in the water catches fire after the plane gets shot down and, you know, lands in the oil. Um, there's cutting going on between the three timelines here and they become increasingly close together. And it makes you feel disoriented because you see something happen and then you see it again happen in the past from the other perspective. And then again, something happens, but then they they're getting closer and closer together. And this is when I, at least I think I interpret it this way. This is when the timelines align and become one. And Mm -hmm. um, so just, just watching that sequence. So it's, yeah, we have basically the same what the fuck moment. Cause it's really hard to figure out like, what are we seeing? Um, yeah, yeah. When the when they all the timelines converge at the end, right? You know, yeah, it, it is definitely a bit, a bit confusing. And it's, um, it's cool though, <laughs> super freaking cool. Uh, so most lasting image. I mean, I feel like the consensus pick is, you know, Tom Hardy's jet on fire at the end. It's like yeah. so, it's so painterly and well composed. Yeah, but. For me, like just to be a little less obvious, I'm gonna go with that first shot of the plane descending upon, down upon the beach, like the camera angle looking up at the plane diving down towards you, like oh, yeah. that kind of perspective uh-huh. of you know, you know, the soldiers looking up, the Allied soldiers. It just makes you like gulp, and mm. it's like coming down at you, mm. just to just end your life like I, right. I, that that specifically just like that angle up and seeing it come down is always huh. just like stuck with me whenever i've i've rewatched dunkirk i love that that's a great choice i'm gonna be cliche and say the tom hardy watching yeah, his I mean, plane burn on the beach um really that whole sequence is just kind of burned into my memory it's so beautiful at dusk i'm riding everyone's oh, yeah, riding yeah. this high of emotion after he you know kind of saves the day there and the orange pink glow of the sky the massive burning fire and um it's just such a powerful sequence and yeah like i said earlier it gives me chills every time i see it and it's definitely the image that i think of when i think about this movie dunkirk the nolan masterpiece he's made a lot of great films i think this is his very best um and 
yeah, that's going to wrap up. This was fun, Ben. Part five of the Chris Nolan Chronicles. Thank you so much for listening. Reminder to spread the word about this series. Any, you know, film fans, pop culture fans in your life, um, you know, shout us out on social media. We greatly appreciate it. In our next and final chapter of the CNC, part six, we will finally get into Nolan's newest movie, (laughs) the 2020 release of Tenet. We have seen it. Yes. We are ready to talk about it. So we'll discuss Tenet as well as how Nolan has become the ultimate movie theater advocate, uh, which has taken on new meaning in, in 2020. So until then, stay safe. Peace out. And in the words of Anne Hathaway as Dr. Amelia Brand in Interstellar, Love is the one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space. Maybe we should trust that, even if we can't understand it yet.